Church, it's a thrill for Joanne and I to be with you and Pastor Rob and Rhonda. And, and uh, we have such a great partnership with your mission team, Bill Oberlin and Lon Allison, working together in Egypt. And uh, Egypt needs a lot of work when you see what's happening in the news and how dangerous it is these days. But the believers are hanging tough. In fact, the two last terrorist attacks, we knew people that were involved in that. And so um, it's sad, but they rejoice that they stood firm for Christ. Well, uh, if you're like me, you see so much happening on the news, and it's just bad news, bad news, bad news, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to turn it on and watch all that's happening, and even the events in London yesterday. But I think we just have to not lose sight of the fact uh, that this is what God's doing in that more Muslims are coming to faith in Christ today than ever before in the history of the religion of Islam. In fact, in the last 10 to 15 years, more Muslims have come to faith in Christ than in the last 1,400 years of the religion of Islam. So that's reason to celebrate. That's the good news that's happening behind the scenes, as I think Muslims are seeing uh, Jesus for who he is. They're seeing Christians for who they honor, and they're seeing the, the real pitfalls of their religion and, and where the radicalism is going. So uh, we didn't always have a heart for Muslims. Far from it. My gosh. We went to Israel. We were leading Bible tours. I was a pastor. So in the late 1990s, I had no idea God was going to call Joanna and myself to serve in the Middle East. Wasn't on my radar. Forget it. Not going. That's good for other people to do it. But God started moving in our heart. But he had to do a lot of surgery on us, a lot of heart surgery. I just, hey, my, you know, my dad was an FBI. So we just looked at everybody suspiciously. I was born in Chicago, okay? My dad was an FBI. He fought organized crime, the mafia in Chicago. Business was booming, as they said, in the FBI office. And then we moved to Las Vegas. The hotels were run by the mob and... I was the only boy in my third grade class that didn't have a last name that was Italian. This was my third grade class. Genovese, Serino, Tagano, Romeo, Costello, Paris. I mean, it was all. And, and they were all related to families that were in the hotels, some of a mob, some not. I was the fed kid, so um, a little out of it. But in my family, you could never get away with anything. In high school, I got nailed every time I tried something. Man, in my house, you were guilty until proven innocent. That's how it worked. So, looking at Muslims, I just assumed that every one of them were terrorists. I mean, look what I'm seeing on TV. So I was getting my car fixed in Denver, and uh, we lived in Colorado Springs at the time. And so Joanne dropped me off to get the car. After she left, I found out it wasn't ready, more work to do. And they said, hey, listen, there's a restaurant across the street. We're sorry we didn't get you called in time. Go over there and just grab something to eat. And we'll pay for it. Just get whatever you want. It's a Mediterranean restaurant. So I'd been to Israel. I liked the food, falafels, you know, all that stuff. So I'm sitting there in this Middle East cafe, falafel, diet Pepsi, and two men walk in. The tables are really close. And they sit down next to me. They have black leather jackets, closely cropped beards. They're Arabs from the Middle East. And they're whispering in Arabic right here, two feet away from me. Okay? I mean... 
We know what they're doing. I'm an FBI kid. I'm not stupid. These guys are plotting no good. I mean, it's obvious. The state capitals up the street, they're probably going to blow it sky high. Or I'm just thinking through all these things in my mind as they're whispering in Arabic and kind of looking to make sure nobody's listening to them. And then all of a sudden, kid you not, one of them said to the other man in English loud enough, he said, hey, Mahmoud, the Lord is amazing, isn't he? And I thought, is that, did they say that in Islam too? I mean, that kind of sounds like us, you know. And then back to Arabic whispering. A few minutes later, the other one says, hey, Mohammed, Jesus is Lord over Syria, isn't he? I just went, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? And so I, I, I just look over and, and, and they're just talking. And I said, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't help but overhear you guys speak. Are you, are you guys believers? And they said, yes, are you? And I said, I think so, you know? <laughs> I mean, I used to be, till I walked in here, totally profiled you, uh, not terrorists, little error there, Tom, brothers in Christ, actually. They're in the family. But that, they had the look, you know? And I'd watch too much news, and um, maybe you can relate to that, too. Listen, those stories are real that we're seeing on the news. But I will say this, Satan is using them in the body of Christ to paralyze us to, from activity toward Muslims. I mean, if we're afraid of them, or we're angry at them, or we hate them because of some of the terrible things that have happened, we're not going to have Christ's heart and reach out to them. And so we have to. We have to fight that. So let's say this today. Let's stop getting 100% of our whole worldview from the news, okay? Let's get it from the Bible. Jesus said that... Um, he has the truth, and um, we definitely want the darkness exposed, but he's still moving, and here's what I believe. The physical war on the ground is just a reflection of the spiritual war raging in the heavenlies. This is the battle for souls. This is what's happening before King Jesus comes back. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be great harvest, but there's going to be persecution. So we say this in Standing in the Fire that... Um, when you see persecution, it's a response from Satan because there's been a harvest. So when there's a great harvest of souls, that's the blowback. Satan's going to try to wipe it out. He's going to persecute. He's going to be killing Christians. But you know what? In our 2,000-year history, here's the crazy thing. It doesn't stop us. It actually accelerates the spread of the gospel. Anytime they try to wipe it out, it, it just was like throwing gas on the fire. Jesus said this, upon this rock, what? I will build my church. And the gates of hell, they're nothing. They're like Kleenex. They're paper thin. Not going to stop it. So who are you going to believe? The Islamic state that says we're going to crush the church in Syria or the Ayatollah in Iran that says there'll never be two religions here. Everybody will be Muslim. Or Jesus who said, upon this rock, I will build my church. See, I think he... I'm betting on Jesus, you know. I think he takes offense uh, at that when groups or terrorists say they're going to wipe out the church. So here you have all this terrorism, and you've seen what's happening in Egypt, and God forbid in Syria how bad it is. But today, right now, did you know the fastest growing area for the gospel where more people are coming to faith in Christ than any place in the world is in the Middle East, in the heart of the terrorism? You know it's the fastest growing church per capita in the world now, in the nation of Iran. What do you think of when you hear Iran? The bomb fighting Israel, uh, what, you know, the peace treaty that we had with them that they're not abiding by, you're thinking about that. 
but the church is growing faster than ever before. Listen, there is good news from the Middle East, and it reminds me of an uh, ancient church in the Middle East. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. There's a lot of parallels with chapter 1 with the church now that's developing in the Middle East. So uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, and let's pick it up in 4 and 5, okay? For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And I, and I just love that, loved by God, chosen you. Paul wanted to remind them, hey, listen, you're going through persecution, but you know what? Remember, you're loved by God. He chose you. He said this would happen uh, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. And you know how we lived among you for your name's sake. So the gospel just bursts on to the scene. Whenever it enters someone's life or a village or a city, the gospel does not come in quietly. Hey, listen, and also remember this. The gospel is never in retreat. I don't care how much terrorism there is or threats. The gospel is not passive. It's not taking a break. It's always moving forward. So it, it just bursts on to the scene. So you know, um, uh, recently in uh, Syria, there was a pastor preaching, and before this six-year war in Syria, all the religious groups stayed to themselves. Sunni Muslims over here, Alawites over here, Druze there, the Christians there. That's how it was. Very well divided. Muslims, if they were interested in Jesus, believe me, they would never walk into a church in Damascus. They could be seen. They could be persecuted. Someone could kill them. It might even be in their family. But now the nation's crumbling. It's so awful. If you look at some of the videos like in Aleppo or Holmes, uh, it, it looks like Berlin, Germany after World War II. It's just almost all gone. So Muslims are desperate. They're, they're seeking Jesus. They're going into churches, above-ground churches, where they could be seen. It could be over. So this friend of mine is preaching in this church, and it's in the southern area of Syria, and there are Muslims in there. And about 30% are either Muslims or from a Muslim background that love Jesus now. Where there's this Muslim man that wanders in. He's in the kafia. He looks traditional. Most people might be a little bit nervous about him showing up in church, and he's sitting there, but God is touching his heart. He doesn't know the words. He doesn't know amen or hallelujah. He doesn't know what that means. But the pastor's preaching, there he is. It's starting to hit him in his heart. And all of a sudden, he just cries out, Allah Akbar. <laughs> well, if someone did that in the Wheaton Bible Church today, we might make a mass exodus for the, for the exits, right? I mean, that's usually what they call when they're ready to, you know, blow themselves up and... And the people around him kind of look, and he's just listening. He doesn't know the lingo. And a few minutes later, the pastor says something again, Allah Akbar, which means God is great. That's the only words he knows. And do you know, at the end of the sermon, that man walked down and gave his life to Jesus. He's being discipled now. Listen, Muslims are like on a line, and God is drawing them to himself and um, the gospel will radically transform them, their country, their city, their, their village. But the question is this. It's going to be difficult. Can they survive persecution? Look at verse 6. The answer again, of course, is in the scriptures. You became imitators of us 
and of the Lord, and you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering. Did Jesus suffer? Yes. Did the disciples? Yes. You welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy. Can you believe that? Severe suffering with joy together in the same sense. It doesn't make sense. I wouldn't put those two together. How can that happen? Go on in the verse. The joy given by the Holy Spirit, it's supernatural. God produces that in us with trials, with tribulations. What's our typical desire? To make it short, to get out of it, to look for the escape hatch as soon as you can. But these believers, right out of the chute, from the get-go, day one, they're being persecuted. So Paul wanted to remind them that they are loved, they are chosen, but yet they have a special joy in the midst of all they're going through. So in 2001, God called us to leave the church after 20 years of pastoring and be missionaries in the Middle East. I mean, we had a lot of blowback on that from family and friends. What are you doing? 9-11 had happened, but two months later, I'm on a plane going to Israel because we're going to work in the Gaza Strip, okay? And I was reading Voice of the Martyrs magazine. Any of you familiar with that, Voice of the Martyrs? And I'm reading this article, and it says, the Gaza Strip is the most dangerous place in the world for Christians right now. And I remember thinking, shoot, why didn't I get that like a week earlier, you know? I mean, I'm on the plane. It's, it's obviously too late to do something about that. Well, got to Israel, got through everything, go into the Gaza Strip, and immediately, a couple months after 9-11, um, I'm in Gaza City, and a Muslim woman walked up to me and just started speaking, and she spoke perfect English. She was in a Muslim hijab and came up and said, you're from America, aren't you? And I said, yes. And she said, well, did you see when the buildings came down in New York City? And, 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 and then they showed, she said on CNN, the people in Gaza cheering and celebrating and all that. Does anybody remember that? I mean, I remember that. And, and I said, yeah, I, I, I did see that. She said, well, I wasn't celebrating. I, I was crying for those people because they didn't deserve to die. And that was so wrong. And, and I'm so sorry that you saw that. And I'm sorry for America. And she said, please forgive us for people in Gaza that celebrated. And she turned on her heel and walked away. And I remember thinking, Lord, there's human beings here. They're not all terrorists, you know? I mean, they are created in the image of God. Maybe there's a chance here. And so I meet my new buddy, Hussein. And Hussein's a former Muslim. And he lives in Gaza. And he lives to share the gospel with Muslims. So first day, here we are, new missionary on the job. And Hussein says, let's go to Yasser Arafat's mosque. It's Friday. The people are praying. They're coming out. Let's go and share Jesus with the Muslims down at Yasser Arafat's mosque in, in Gaza City. Let's, let's go, okay? And yeah, okay, so let's go. So <laughs> and in this van, and we take off, and man, we're going down this street, and there's George Bush hung in effigy on fire, and then Ariel Sharon, the prime minister of Israel, and our driver says, whoops, wrong turn. Let's go here. And uh, Finally, we make it to the mosque, and we're hanging out, you know? And I knew nothing about Muslim outreach, nothing really seriously. I mean, I wore shorts to the mosque. It was, it was hot, you know? I mean, that's bad. That's like eating a ham sandwich at the mosque. You know, you don't do that. And, but I didn't know, and I'm in my shorts, and I see 
men greeting men and you know women. I didn't realize it was men with men, women with women. I just, you know, I didn't know that. But my wife's Italian. They hug and kiss everybody, you know? So there I am in my shorts. I'm meeting people. I'm hugging the men and I'm hugging the women, you know? And um, they're kind of giggling and that I found out later. But anyway, it's going well and they're visiting and they want to know. Uh, about us and how's America doing and we're weaving in Jesus and the conversation's going well and Hussein pulls me back and whispers in my ear and he said hey Tom I should have told you this before we left but this is illegal what we're doing so we could get arrested for sharing the gospel at the mosque but really you know everybody should be arrested at least once for sharing their faith don't you think and um, yeah okay got it right and uh, but then after some time the mood changed and someone either went and got the religious leaders, the imams, the clerics and mullahs and some of those and brought them in. All of a sudden, it wasn't those friendly people. It was the unfriendly ones, long beards, skull caps, white dish dashes, Korans in their hands, accusations, pointing, angry, yelling, moving in. It was getting closer and closer. You could feel it was getting a little claustrophobic and Hussein pulls me back and whispers in my ear. He said, Tom, this is not going well. I think you noticed that. Yeah, I, I got that. And um, he said, these guys could hurt us. I know who they are. They're connected with Hamas and they could try to hurt us. So I just want you to be ready for that. Uh, really. But and they're really angry. I mean, they might even try to kill us, but I, I'm ready to die for Jesus and you're a missionary, you're ready to die for Jesus, aren't you? And I, I said, um, yes. Um, do you mean like right now? Do you mean now? Uh, and, and the first thought that went through my, my head was this, man, what a short career. Really, I mean, it was one trip and we never saw him again. But uh, anyway, so obviously we got through that, but I got on a plane and left, he stayed. It didn't matter that he was going to be beaten. It didn't matter that he was going to go to jail. It didn't matter that he was probably going to die. And it didn't matter that his own dad tried to shoot him and kill him. He was staying. He wanted to stand in the fire and he wasn't running away from the persecution. Can young believers survive persecution? Here's the answer. We thrive in persecution. We do much better. We get stronger. We go deeper. Our roots are dug deeper. We, we welcome it. We have joy in the midst of it. it. It does not stop us. It propels us forward. And, and I believe that persecuted believers in the last few years have become the new face of genuine Christianity. Uh, I was privileged to write a book uh, two years ago called Killing Christians, Living the Faith Where It's Not Safe to Believe, and write the stories of believers and and catalog how um, they went to be with Jesus. And so this new book, Standing in the Fire, is a follow-up of believers that should be dead. They should be like the guys in Killing Christians, but they're not. These are real stories of people that came to faith in Christ, former Muslim terrorists, a former secret police from Syria. They came to faith in Jesus, were discipled, and guess what? They didn't run. They stayed. And they're like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember that? Nebuchadnezzar throws them in the fire. And then all of a sudden he looks in. Wait a minute, there's not three. There's four. And it's the Son of God. We believe it's Jesus in there with them. That's the reason they're alive. The church could be annihilated in the Middle East, could be crushed. But Jesus said, it's not going to happen because I'm going to build it. 
It's not going to shrink. It's going to grow. And it is. And persecuted believers are willing to suffer. They're willing to die for Jesus. In fact, those are the two questions that we ask Muslims and our leaders do before they're ready to pray and receive Jesus. Number one, are you willing to suffer for him? Because it's probably going to happen, and it might even be from your family. Two, if they answer yes, are you willing to die for Jesus? Just think about those. You're willing to suffer, willing to die. Can you imagine? I, I was a pastor in, in, for 20 years in America. Can you, remember the, can you imagine those questions in the new members class? Like just how that would just thin the ranks. And, and, but that's reality to them. They know that it could happen. So I want my wife Joanne to come up and introduce you to a young lady that found Christ in the Middle East. And it's a remarkable story. But uh, why don't you welcome my wife, Joanne. Would you? <laughs> Good morning, everyone. How are you? Hello. Thank you. Well, I'd like you to pack your bag and take a, an imaginary trip with me to Jordan. And to set the stage for you a little bit, I want to paint a picture of you of what life like, is like right now in Syria. In Jordan, most of the people that we meet there are women because the husbands have either been taken by the Syrian army or they've been killed and they're not able to come with their families into Jordan. So the women are coming with their children and most of them are walking with the clothes on their back and the things that they can carry. And they've seen their houses destroyed. As I've, I've mentioned, they've seen their loved ones either killed or tortured. So they come brokenhearted and they come desperate. So there they are in Jordan, and they're refugees. They can't get jobs, so they have very, very little. And we go into their homes, if you want to call it that. They're just little hovels. Many of them just have dirt floors. They have very little material things. They don't have furniture. They have little pillows on the ground that they sit on during the day, and at night they become their beds. And so here we go into one of the homes, and it's, there's a woman. Here's this sweet lady, Shireen. And she's a little old woman. She was a tiny, tiny little thing and just talking as fast as she could in Arabic with this look of agony on her face. And you can see she is carrying the weight of the world on her shoulders. Can't you just see the pain etched on her face? And what she was telling me as she was talking so quickly is that she came with one daughter-in-law and her grandchildren to Jordan, but she left five other children and all of those grandchildren in Aleppo. And as Tom just mentioned, Aleppo is Honestly, it's amazing anyone can even live there because it is utterly destroyed. So she lives in daily, constant fear for this family, her family that she loves so much. And so I, you know, I was just trying to encourage her and to love her and to tell her that Jesus, the God that made her, loves her with an everlasting love. And he's got her name engraved on the palm of his hand, as well as the rest of her family back in Aleppo. And I knew that the only way to really reach out to her, of course, is with the living, breathing word of God. But if I was to hold up a Bible, she would be threatened by that. That wall would come up, and she wouldn't hear anything I would say because Muslims are taught that the Bible's been changed and that it's corrupted. But we know that's where the power is, right, is in his words. So we began telling stories from Scripture. So we would start by saying, can I tell you a true story from the Word of God? Okay, one day, Jesus was around this big lake. And with him were his 12 closest friends. And he was healing people of every kind of disease that you can imagine. Well, one day in that crowd was a woman. And she had been bleeding for 12 years. She did everything she could to get well. She spent all her money on doctors. But she got worse instead of better. And she thought to herself, oh, 
if I could just touch Jesus, maybe I would be healed. So she made her way in through that crowd, and she reached out, and she touched the hem of Jesus' robe. Well, you know that story, right? But when you read it or hear it like that, doesn't it just bring it to life? And then we ask questions like, what did you think of God, or what did you think of Jesus? And they start interacting with God's word. And then we told another story and another story. Well, by this time, sweet little Shireen is just like she's eating out of our hands. She wants to know more about Jesus. And so then with our translator, we share the gospel with her. And Shireen has got a childlike faith. God has been preparing her heart. And she says, yes, I want to know Jesus. I'm willing to suffer. I want to know Jesus. And so with our translator, we led her to faith in Christ. And this next picture shows, isn't that precious? That is Shireen literally minutes after she gave her heart to Christ. Look at the joy on her face. All that worry has been lifted, hasn't it? Now, have her circumstances changed in 10 minutes? No, they have not. But the God of all hope has entered her life, and she feels the difference. She is living these words from 1 Thessalonians. God loved her. God drew her to himself through the gospel. And yes, she is in affliction. Yes, she has suffered. But the joy that's given by the Holy Spirit is evident on her face. Well, you may be sitting here saying, okay, that was an awesome imaginary trip. And the cool thing is, is you'll get to spend eternity with Shireen. She is your sister in Christ. You won't meet her here most likely, but you will spend eternity with her. And this next picture, I have to show you this next one. I just had to kiss her because she was so, so adorable. But you may be sitting here thinking, that is great. And yes, you're rejoicing that she is now in the kingdom of God. But you're thinking, I may never get a chance to go over to the Middle East. I've got good news for you. You don't have to go. We have a saying around our office. We say, the Muslims are coming, the Muslims are coming, the Muslims are here. And they're not going anywhere. And all of us, as followers of Christ, have been called to the Great Commission, haven't we? So really, we're all missionaries. So our job is to reach the Muslims right outside our doors. And I believe that we, as followers of Jesus, are going to be held accountable if we do not reach them with the love of Christ. So I have an assignment for you. And if I was going to be back here next week, I'd check up on you. But since I won't, it's between you and the Lord. But here's your assignment. The next time you're out and about, you're shopping or you're in the mall or wherever you are, you're at work, you're with your kids at school, and you see a veiled woman in her hijab, show her that you see her. Acknowledge her. Make eye contact. Smile. Have a conversation with her. It is so easy. You do it all the time with people, don't you? Well, God has called us to do that with everyone, including the Muslims. As Tom mentioned a moment ago, just like us, they are souls created in the image of God. And they are going to spend eternity somewhere. The question is, where are they going to spend eternity? With Jesus or separated with, from him forever? And you know, we have to remember, as followers of Christ, we are the only ones that have truth. And if we're not going to reach out to them, who will? So again, that's your assignment. The next time you're out, show them that you see them. It adds nothing to your to-do list. You can do this as you're going about your daily life. But what you'll find out is what I've discovered is initially they kind of have a little wall. You know, we kind of think, that, well, first of all, we can be afraid of them or angry with them or resentful or bitter or maybe hate. Or some people, and I know I've felt this way, think, well, they're dressed that way, so they don't want us to bother them because they put up this wall to protect themselves. But that is not the truth. 
Let me ask you, have you ever been in a situation where you know somebody that you know saw you, but they pretended that they didn't? We've all had that happen, haven't we? And it hurts. Well, that's what they do. They see when we see them. But then we kind of glance like we're looking through them and we go the other way. So they get this little hard exterior. But as soon as you start talking to them, it is amazing. They just melt. They want friendship. They're here in our country because they're dissatisfied with their own country for a reason. So ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, it's our job to reach them with the love of Jesus. One last thing I want you to think about. If we don't reach out to them, do you know who we're partnering with? Satan himself. Because he would love for us, the ones that are the truth bearers of the gospel, he would love for us to ignore them so that no one shares the gospel with them. So every time we ignore them or pretend we don't see them, we're partnering with the enemy. But when we do acknowledge them and we do reach out to them in friendship, ah, we're partnering with the, Holy, with the Holy Spirit, with God. And can you imagine the joy that it would be to develop a friendship with a Muslim and to be the one that is privileged to lead them to faith in Christ? Can you imagine? God has that for all of us, and it is so easy to do. So anyway, that is my um, assignment for you. And one day, if I'm ever back here, I'm going to ask you how it went. <laughs> Thank you. So we have some friends, Jay and Marsha, and they got convicted about all the Muslims living in their area. They live in Richardson, Texas. There's a lot of them. Did you know that Texas is the largest Muslim state in the country now? And so they have Muslims living on their block, never met them, never cared, never even thought about it. And so they went over and met this family from Kuwait and said, we want to get to know you. Would you come to our house for dinner? And they accepted, readily accepted. Well, they went out and bought the stuff and they want to make the right food. You know, they want to make the hummus and baba ganoush and all that good stuff. And so they did that. And when the family came over, they found out a couple of things. Number one, they're from Kuwait, but they're actually part of the royal family, you know? So they're not exactly with the Islamic State, right? And um, so they're with the royal family, and then they sat down to dinner. They had two grade school kids that were just like jittery, jumpy. We just couldn't sit still, knocking things over. And, and Jay said to me, you know, it was like they drank Red Bull on the way over or something, you know? They're like out of control. And finally the mom said, I'm so sorry. The kids are just like just like really excited and all that. And she said, um, but we've lived in America for almost eight years and you're the first ones that ever invited us into your home. And I think about that. Does that hit you like it hits me? There was no, no doubt other believers on the block. They had a Bible study, but nobody even thought about them. Nobody cared. It's that worldview thing. We're watching the news. They, they gotta be terrorists, right? I mean, look how they dress. I mean, that is a small percentage. It's a real thing for sure. We see it. It's affected our lives. We're blacklisted in countries. We know about that, but that's not all Muslims. That's a small percentage. But when they turn to Jesus, look what happens. Verse 7, and so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia, and the Lord's mes message rang out from you. When persecuted believers uh, are willing to stand, willing to die, they're a model for us to look at. The Thessalonian believers were, the believers in the Middle East are also. And so we're going to show you a video now. Uh, I wrote about him in Killing Christians. His name is Farid Assad. And I also wrote about him in this new book, Standing in the Fire. 
He is like the Apostle Paul in Syria. He goes everywhere. They've seen thousands come to faith in Christ. He's part of a big church planting movement. People are coming to faith in Christ all over that country in the desperation. And he's going to share with you. He doesn't speak English as a first language. It's number three. So when he says God willing, he means God's will. There's some subtitles. You'll get it. But buckle your seatbelts. It's pretty rough. It's a real picture of what's happening in Syria and what's happening to some of your brothers and sisters in the faith. So let's show that right now. When the war started, many problems happened, and it's so difficult to continue the ministry. And we know some someday uh, the problems is come inside our homes, not just in our city or in our areas. Um, that time I speak to the leaders, and uh, we met together, and I said, as in Acts book, the believers when they have the persecuted most of them they go out of Jerusalem. If you want now to go out of your area or out of Syria to save your families, this is good if God gave you this to do. But uh, we, we must to know maybe one day the problems come to our families and to our life. And maybe we will lose our life one day. You know, when I left the room and after time, I turned back to see the decision of the leaders. I found 25 people. They stand there and they said, we will not leave. We will continue to serve God here in this area. And we will continue the ministry. If we are die, we will go to Jesus. And if we leave here, we will be with Jesus. And you know, but they asked me something to do. They said, if one of our team die, you know we are non-Christian background and no one will take care about our body if we killed or something happened to us. Uh, what we can do if this happened? For that, we buy this land and we build a graveyard. This graveyard for if anyone killed from our team, we can put him there. This is the first building of our ministry. I think it's first uh, happened in Raqqa city in Syria. They give the chance for the uh, Christian. They said to him, if you leave your Christianity now, you can be uh, hold your life, or if not, we will kill you. This, this decision is, you, you know, it's must to, to, to take directly. And most of the uh, Christians said, no, we are ready to die for Jesus. And for that, they, uh, you, you can see many uh, pictures about the Christian. They put them in the cross. And when they put them, many times they put in the uh, area, all the people can see them. To learn the people, if you will be Christian, this is your what will happen to you. Uh, and uh, most of the people, I thank God for these uh, heroes in the faith. They die for Jesus and they put them in the cross. You remember when I told you about the stories about the man who uh, was his son and uh, they bring them and they ask them to leave uh, them faith in Jesus Christ. 
But the father said no, and the son said no. And they asked the father, if you don't uh, come to Islam now, we will, we will kill your son in front of your, your eyes. And after that, they cut the head of the son, and they start to play football in his head, front of his father's eyes. This is something incredible. You cannot understand what's happened. But through all this bad news, you can see the hope is growing between this uh, uh, difficult and uh, bad people. You know, some, sometimes many people ask me why, why you continue in the ministry in Syria, especially in this time in the war. The important things for, uh, for our life to be in God willing. This is our call from God to, uh, to do the ministry in Syria. When we are inside the, the God willing, that means we are in the safe place. But if we are go out of God willing and go out of Syria, that means we are in the dangerous place. Maybe I, I can go like to Lebanon, to Jordan, to US, to, to anywhere and continue my life there. But that means I am go out of God willing. That means I am dangerous. The important things in our life, not to be alive, but to be with Jesus willing. But if I am in, inside the dangerous, but in God willing, that means I am in the safe place. This is my belief, and I trust in Jesus. He will keep my life, and when he wants me to go to him, I am ready to do this. Pastor Fareed challenged 10 men to pray about if they were going to stay in Syria or not. And he said, do you have wives? you have children? Maybe you need to go. One of these days, the borders will be closed. We won't be able to leave. But if we stay, there's one thing for certain. We're going to die here in Syria for Jesus. So take a week off and pray and see what the Lord shows you to do. If he calls you to stay, come back here in a week. And that's what he was saying there, telling you that after a week, after they prayed and fasted, they came back to that room, that same underground basement in the Damascus area. And he was wondering if anyone would even be there. I mean, who can stay there? How can you raise a family? In Damascus one day, 92 bombs exploded. You can imagine having a family there. And he opened the door and there weren't five leaders there. There weren't 10. There was 25. The 10 had gone out and recruited 15 more. And they said, we're staying. We're staying here in Syria. We know we'll probably die for Jesus, but Jesus is the answer to this prop, to the war, to the problems in this country. And so we get emails from them continually, and they have to be careful because they can be read. There's listening ears all over, and emails are read, and, and so it will say something like, well, um, he is moving. We can understand that. We have many new friends. 
It means people are coming to faith in Christ. And then they'll say, oh, and there's more good news. And the graveyard's still empty. They haven't died. Nobody's died. They are going into the Islamic State. They are going, they've led terrorists to faith in Christ, secret police from Syria. And Jesus has kept them alive like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing in the fire. He's right there with them. So what does this mean to you? I think as we close and land this plane, let's just think about a couple of things. Let's do this, guys. Let's change our worldview. Let's not get it from the news anymore. Let's get it from the Bible. That's where God really gives us perspective on what's happening today. Jesus is moving in the Muslim world. And the physical war that we're seeing is really just a reflection of the spiritual war raging in the heavenlies. That's what it's about. It's about the kingdom. It's about the souls of men and women. Uh, number two, let's pray. Pray for our brothers and sisters that are in persecution. If one of us suffers, we all suffer, Paul said. Jesus said, they're going to hate you because they hate me. You can link up. If any of you are Facebookers, you can get on 838, number 830 spelled out, and then 8. If you like it, you'll get updates daily from the front lines around the world. Joanne and I are going to South Korea to work with the underground church from North Korea a week from Monday. We'll be sending out email, uh, I mean, updates on 838. And that's 838 because of Romans 8, 38, 39. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, Paul names about nine things, shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We set our watches at 838 p.m. And whenever it goes off or your iPhone or whatever, we stop and pray for those that are in prison, persecution, and danger. They're part of the family. Even though we're halfway across the globe, when they suffer, we suffer. Let's pray for them. Three, ask yourself the two questions. Am I willing to suffer for Jesus? Am I? If push came to shove, two, am I willing to die for Jesus? We often say this, in the Middle East, you come to Jesus, you've got to be willing to die for him. In America, we're looking for people that are just willing to live for him, right? That's the difference. That's the danger zone in the Middle East. And then four, recognize the times. Uh, 2015 was the year of the martyr. 2016 was worse. 2017, we're off to a horrible start. I believe those numbers are going to grow and grow and grow until Jesus comes back. But don't let that dislodge you. Don't let that dismay you or, or make you nervous or what's going on. Listen, earth ain't heaven. Jesus said that one day he's going to come and take his church home and things are not falling apart. They're falling into place. This is what Jesus predicted. You're going to have to stick close to me, remain in me, abide in me. That's not just some fuzzy theological concept. We need to be able to do that, or we're not going to be able to withstand the persecution. I'll, I'll close with this, and I have just a couple of minutes. If you can have that last picture up. Uh, we were in, uh, with our Syrian leaders in Lebanon, and uh, we brought a, a little over 100 of them into Lebanon off the front lines in Syria. And we met this woman, the tall one in the purplish, bluish sweater, and she shared her story with us. I asked pastors and everybody around her, did this really happen? Oh, yeah, this really happened. It's all over Syria. She has a son. Her name is Raja. She has a son. They lived in an area that was especially hit by terrorism. 70,000 children are dead just in their city. So if you can imagine... And finally, her son called Raja and said, we're going to make a run for it. We're leaving Syria tonight. We're getting in a rubber raft with two other families because there's no electricity. There's no running water. Kids are drinking out of mud puddles in the street. I can't get a job. What can we do? We've got to go. We've got to go. 
And the mom said, okay, I'm, I, I mean, I'm going to pray. She lived in another part of Syria. They got on a rubber raft, three families, and they took off in the Mediterranean trying to get to Turkey so they can get on the refugee track and then go all the way to Germany or Sweden and, and be a refugee there. And so they took off. They have a son that's three years old. His name is Ali, which means he was born halfway through the Syrian war. You can imagine how traumatized he is. The bombs going off, all the things people being crucified outside. He has grown up in this, and he's turning three and does not speak at this point. He's been so traumatized. He does say mommy and daddy, but they get in the boat, and they, the raft, and they take off with the families to get way out into the Mediterranean, and a big freighter ship comes that first night, does not see them. They barely get out of the way, and it passes them, but the wake flips the raft over. Everybody goes flying. Ali doesn't speak, he doesn't swim. How are we gonna find him? It's dark and they're calling help, help. They're calling for him, nothing. And finally, 15 minutes later, fishermen come in boats and they start to collect people. And many, a couple of the families had members that died and they pull this couple, Raja's son and wife into the boat and they're just crying, where's Ali, where's Ali? They pull him into the boat. There's Ali sitting in the boat. And they said to the fisherman, what, how, how did that happen? He doesn't swim. It took like 15 minutes to get here. And he said, I, I don't know. He was the first one I saw. He was floating on his back. He was just floating on his back perfectly. Now, you remember last year about the little Syrian boy that they found him on the beach and the shoes on, and it was so horrific. Well, there's Ali. He's floating on his back, and his parents are talking. How can this happen? He doesn't swim. He, doesn't, he couldn't do that. He couldn't be in the water for 15 minutes. Remember, he doesn't speak. And Ollie sits up and looks at him, and this is what he says. Jesus was there waiting for me in the water. Jesus lifted me up out of the water. He's speaking in sentences. What's the first word he said? Jesus. Jesus was there waiting for me in the water. He lifted me up. And mommy, he smiled at me. And he was saved, and that couple was saved. And you know what they decided? They decided to go back to Syria. They said, if God is that powerful, if Jesus is that powerful, he can protect us in the open sea in the middle of the night, we're going back to Syria. And little Ali has no problems with speaking now. He's uh, actually becoming a little evangelist in Syria. He sees pictures of Jesus, if there's any churches or whatever, and he'll always point and say, that's the one who saved me. That's Jesus. He saved me. And so I want to say to you today, no matter what your problems are today, uh, financial, health, work problems, whatever, Jesus is there waiting for you. He's just like this. He's the same Jesus that lifted Ali up. He's the same Jesus that's standing in the fire with Fareed and all of those 25, and the graveyard is still empty. So, He's moving today. Muslims are coming to our country. Let's not be afraid of them. They're one-fifth of the planet. Uh, unfortunately, 86% of Muslims worldwide don't know one believer. We've been called to complete the Great Commission. Let's not you leave that big block of people uh, off the table. Let's not leave them to themselves. They're open. They want a relationship with God. They want to know Jesus Let's meet them and love them to Christ. And let's pray.
for persecuted believers in the Middle East and pray for little Ali. I think he's probably going to be the next Apostle Paul in Syria. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our lives, how you blessed us, how we are living in this amazing day when more people are coming to faith in Christ than ever before, ever before. And yes, the world looks evil and terrorists attack yesterday and evil is being called good, good's being called evil, but you're working. You have not left the people of Syria, the Middle East, or the world. You're powerfully working behind the scenes. And we love you and we give you our lives, Lord Jesus, and we say, use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you. Thanks for letting us be with you this morning.